Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies Podcast. I'm your co-host Iris and I'm here with my bro. Wesley. And we are discussing today Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. And um, I just want to preface this conversation by saying that uh, I don't, you know, I don't go into these movies with a lot of context. And I think that that was definitely a disadvantage for me in this movie. Yep. We're going to compare this movie, I am, in certain a couple of ways to Al Pacino's other movie this year, which is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I think, as you said, definitely requires some historical knowledge, yes. some context, if it's going to be at any in any way entertaining. Right. Yes. You have to have a, a, a semblance of a timeline and a history to understand once, in a, once upon a time in Hollywood. And I, I don't have a lot of context for like mob history and I know it seemed like this movie was very historical um, and based on these real life characters who eventually all get knocked off and therefore it was very boring to me. Boring. Boring. This is the second Scorslogsy movie that I've watched, including the one with a- Andrew Garfield that's four hours in Japan. Um, was it Silence? The yeah. priest one in Japan. Yeah, I, I didn't watch it. I think I avoided it last year or a couple of years ago because of the runtime. But I will say that I was at Telluride at the film festival and I watched Martin Scorsese's other three and a half hour movie, which was a documentary about George Harrison called um, Or Living in the Material World. Uh, George Harrison, obviously uh, one of the Beatles, when you're at a film festival like Telluride, you have precious time. You have to budget your time accordingly and dash across town and get in line for another movie that you get to see four or five months before anybody else. And we settled in for a Scorsese documentary, which sounds on paper like a good thing. It was very long. I remember almost nothing about it. And recently I looked it up after watching The Irishman because I thought, whatever happened to, to that movie, to the George Harrison documentary? I did find that... I forget what the budget was. Obviously, it was relatively low because it's a documentary, but it's still total gross in the U.S. was something like $30,000. Oh, ouch. So, Martin Scorsese, um, I also did not have an extreme amount of historical context. I have blind spots when it comes to certain areas of history. I don't know a tremendous amount about Hoffa. I do know more about Martin Scorsese movies. And... We're here where even if we don't know what ha- or don't care what happened to Jimmy Hoffa, here I went into a movie and was immediately comforted being in Martin Scorsese's world. We're back with Pacino, who'd never worked with Scorsese before this actually, but we're back with De Niro 
and Joe Pesci and Harvey Keitel and all the Scorsese's cameras and doo-wop 60s music and it immediately felt familiar and good and I settled in thinking even if I have no idea what happens beyond what everybody knows about Jimmy Hoffa is that nobody knows what happened to Jimmy Hoffa that I was going to be along for a ride that was going to be entertaining and compelling in, in what Martin Scorsese usually does. Was this a historical narrative or are they rewriting some history? I mean, is there any validity to this, to the Irishman having killed and murdered Hoffa? Uh, the Irishman was, he's an actual person who did confess to killing Hoffa and then recanted in the 90s. So there, as with the movie, there's ambiguity as to whether or not his story has any credibility. Okay. So why did he, do you have any reference for why he chose to tell this story? We're talking about Martin Scorsese. Yeah. So Scorsese had been on the hunt for a project to do with De Niro. Unbelievably, he and Robert De Niro haven't made a movie together since Casino, and that was 95. Another long movie. <clears throat> Another long movie, but a vastly more entertaining movie, in my humble opinion. But it had been a while, and, and Casino in itself pales in comparison to Goodfellas, which is one of the few sort of uh, bandwagons that I jumped on, that initially, initially I, was, uh, I was hesitant about because everyone loves Goodfellas so much, but it won me over. Scorsese and De Niro had been looking for a project for a long time. They actually talked about a genre picture uh, somewhat relevant, and then they picked up on this book, originally called uh, I Hear You Paint Houses, and decided to settle on this project instead. And it's been a long in gestation, something like 10 years, to get it on the screen. Um, so they cho it seems to be right in Martin Scorsese's vein, and you remember when he did The Departed, there are very few times where I would have bet the farm on who would win the Oscar uh, for any given uh, category. One was Daniel Day-Lewis in uh, There Will Be Blood, and then Martin Scorsese finally winning his legacy Oscar for The Departed, which was a different kind of gangster movie. It was all Irishmen, and we were uh, in Boston, but he went. He was. He returned to form after his Hugo garbage and a bunch of other stuff. Martin Scorsese returned to an official gangster movie, and they were like, "This is our last chance to give this dude his Oscar based on the kind of movies we know he makes well." So they gave it to him. I think that if The Departed never existed, The Irishman, he would be a hands-down favorite for his gangster epic directing Oscar. So you don't. So because The Departed does exist, you think that he might not be looked down as favorably. I, based on this movie's merits, no, I don't think that he's a runaway favorite. The Departed ended up winning Best Picture. The Irishman will certainly not do that. Um, and by now, uh, you know, twelve years on past The Departed, um, Scorsese is not quite as in vogue as he once was. Right. It uh, doesn't make him as any less capable, but when I walked into The Irishman, it, it immediately fa felt familiar, and rather than the warm and fuzzies, I had some trepidation. Like, he's gonna change it up a little bit, right? They got the band back together, all the big name stars that we associate with him, so you have to come out of the gate a little bit different if you're going to be relevant. And I think that what this movie ended up achieving was a getting the band back together, slightly older, slightly more tired, uh, more rusty and dusty and creaky, but it's so satisfying to see all these people together under the captain of 
the best gangster movie director of all time. It was nice, so nice to see all these people together, but it's none of them are in their heyday. No, certainly not. So you feel you're always very sensitive to um, to context and to um, you know that these these things don't exist in a vacuum or whatever. So. I feel like you appreciate this movie because of the context, because of the director, because of the cast, but can you judge it aside from that? Yes. And and your judgment of that is boring. Boring. Yeah. Yeah. Even if this were, if you walked into this movie not knowing who was in it or who directed it, right. it would be a slog. Yes. And whereas in any movie that I can think of that he directed in this milieu, Gangs of New York, The Departed, Goodfellas, Casino, any one of those movies, you remember dynamic scenes that were compelling and and funny or scary or interesting. Right. Not one of the hits, not one of the situations. Uh, what I, I really, you know, that movie was kind of long, but I want to go and watch that part again because that part was so awesome. What right. was this scene in Irishman? that caught you and think, well, if this movie was on in front of me and I was on a plane or something, right. what part would I skip to? What right. is that part? I don't know what that part is. Well, the, the latter third of the movie, I felt like, did pick up. And I think it was because it wasn't as much about these characters in the historical context, but rather some actual narrative going on and some suspense and drama leading up to Hoffa's hit. But um, prior to that, not a lot. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm countering my own point, which is that you can't take these movies in a vacuum. You can't experience these movies in a vacuum. And um, you know, the fact that Scorsese directed this and was in his element in doing so, I think has really, uh, you know, colors the experience, but also has really um, affected how it's been received publicly. I mean, it re it's already received some pretty major awards, and I just, I mean, I just don't get it. It's, and I have to preface this all with like it's just it's not for me. I mean, the, I thought The Departed was boring. I was barely able to finish it. And these are just I think these are just those kinds of films for you know a certain audience, not me. I think that Martin Scorsese has a built-in following who will watch this movie automatically. Dad has watched it at least twice. The Irishman. And, yeah, Dad's not a staying awake for movies type, but he's watched it twice, and maybe he has more historical context. I don't know, but. Uh, I went in giving Martin Scorsese some credence and allowing for the length, and uh, but as much as I tried, I still wandered through some of it and had to rewind some of it and, and, and make sure that I was diligently watching and trying to keep the thread, you know? Yeah, and that was the thing. At some point, I just kind of gave up trying to keep it all together, and it feels disjointed to me because of that. So what exactly? happened. There was this dude, he was a union dude, and then he gets in with the higher-ups. Yeah, so Frank, I forget his last name, but Robert De Niro's character, Frank, is hired um, by, he, he kind of gets in low level uh, with the mob and then comes to associate with Jimmy Hoffa by way of the mob, who of course is the president of the Teamsters Union, uh, becomes a confidant and a close associate of Hoffa in particular. And then he's kind of pulled in different directions when Hoffa, through, with, because of his mob associations, is bringing too much attention to the mob and their involvement in the unions and uh, needs to be silenced. Uh, as you saw, he was warned and didn't relent 
Uh, as to whether or not the mob really killed him, I don't know 100%. I uh, can't say with any, any certainty. But the movie, suggested by the movie, he got a little bit too big for his britches, wouldn't calm down, thought he was above their uh, you know, re reprimands, and De Niro was put in a position where maybe if he didn't take out Hoffa, he would be next on the chopping block. Why was he chosen for the hit? Because he was closest to uh, Hoffa and trusted, but he was still under the mob's thumb. But he had a genuine relationship with Jimmy Hoffa and Jimmy Hoffa's family. Why would he do this? I think because he had no choice. That is at least what I would like to believe because it was implied that if he didn't follow to the letter what he was told to do, he would no longer be in the picture himself. So it was basically Hoffa or himself. Yes, and he had been trained to think impartially along those lines and was able to do what needed to be done, as he had done for Jimmy Hoffa. Right, and his relationship with um, the dude from Home Alone, Joe, Joe, Pesci. <laughs> Joe Pesci, with Buffalino. His relationship with him was also genuine, which I think made this um, all the more complex. Yes, and so he was pulled between two people with whom he had close associations, was forced to choose, and when he did, he did it with impunity. So it was like an old dude love triangle. Yeah, but it's it's just buddies. It's it's all It's all Scorsese's world where these three people have been lo a love triangle for the ages, right? And, right? and just circling each other the whole time. But um, is also Scorsese's world, or maybe Coppola's world, where it's all about like respect and appreciation and deference and playing a certain kind of role within yeah. the circle, social circle. Yeah, it's difficult to connect emotionally to these decisions when it all comes from um, the rules, right. the, the Cosa Nostra, uh, the code, the omerta. You have to make decisions and those decisions would be contrary to the viewers from an emotional perspective. And you can see what they're doing and why they're doing it. You just maybe don't care as much. So he made the choice to look up for number one, murder his friend, maybe even his best friend, and stay in good with the mob and with Joe Pesci and at the expense of his family mm -hmm. and maybe his conscience? I don't know. He seemed steadfast in the end to not say, well, he, he did confess and then recanted it for some reason. I'm not sure entirely why. So the message to me of the movie at the end is that he, because of his decisions and his actions, is alone, right? And, yes. And I think that, so I think at one point, like dad put it to me that, Growing old is a bitch, and I think that I've never—that's never left me. And I think about it, especially as I have like kids, and I think about growing old and 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 one day possibly leaving them, and it breaks my heart to think about it. And um, I feel like the message in the movie is, growing old is a bitch, and you have your conscience to deal with, and you're alone, and you live in this sad house, this sad home, or this hospital, or whatever. And I felt like you didn't need all of that backstory to get that message across. To that end, growing old, does Robert De Niro's character, does he succeed? Does he win by being the only person to grow old when so many people got shot in the face 
or strangled in their beds or whatever the lower thirds told us happened to all those people who died prematurely? Does he win by being old and in a nursing home all by himself? Or would his life have been better served? Would he have been happier if he had been bumped off in the back of the head with no warning whatsoever in his 60s right. or whatever? Right. Uh, it goes back to no country for old men. And maybe Tommy Lee Jones, who uh, survives beyond everyone else, he exists and is tormented by his past uh, because he lives in a country where that's not fit for old men and he is the only one left. Right. And does he win or does he lose in the sense that, yes, he survived, but to what end? Right. So he can live with his regrets and his remorse? Right. He won by his perhaps younger self standards. Like when you're young, you think survival and um, maybe the most toys and the most money or whatever is winning. And then you get there and you realize that your uh, metric for success has changed. Now, bear in mind that Robert De Niro's character at the end, despite losing his daughters and all his friends, nobody was around to visit him except the authorities who were hoping to coax uh, a confession uh, on paper out of him. He was still wearing Joe Pesci's ring right. and Hoffa's watch in the old folks' home in, and still maintaining his silence. So it seems like he is exactly where he expected to be and growing old is a bitch, but that's what he has to contend with. Right. So no, you make your choices and life happens, but I don't know that he, he's sad, but he wouldn't change. He wouldn't recant, repent, confess uh, in such a way that his daughter might come back into the fold. Right. Um, he's not going to change. Right. And people become more steeled in their resolve as they get older. Mom is definitely stubborn. Um, well, he also says, like, time, you wouldn't, um, what does he say about time? Like, you just don't know how fast it goes by until you're there. Like, he says that to the nurse, I think, at the end. Yeah. Um, when you're at that age, when you look back, you think that the time is, you t think the time flew, and, um, oh, and the things that you think are important, you realize have almost zero impact on the people who've come after. Like, she doesn't even know who Jimmy Hoffa is. Right. And uh, larger message for the movie, do, are we supposed to care to such minute detail who Jimmy Hoffa was and who the people around him were so that we could refer to them casually in conversation on a first name basis and we track all of these characters and the progress of them across the decades? Are we this interested or are we as disinterested as the nurse who is humoring the old guy telling the story? Mm -hmm. that, does that relate to Martin Scorsese and De Niro and Pacino and Pesci? Yeah. I mean, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I think it's fun to see them together. I mean, I love The Godfather even though, do they ever actually play together? In nope. Uh, Pacino and De Niro played father and son, with De Niro playing the part of his dad in flashback in The Godfather 2. Right, but they're actually never on screen or in a scene together. Nope. Robert De Niro and Al Pacino have been on screen in scenes in a number of movies since then, but the one for which they are most, most known to have been associated with, they were never in a scene together. Got it. Okay. So, I mean... I, I liked the actors, I liked seeing them together, but um, the story itself, I mean, I just didn't have, either I just didn't have enough context or I didn't have enough patience, but I just couldn't 
get into it. I think you really have you have to be in the detail. You have to be in the minutia of the story, and I think it can be gripping for people who are. I agree. And if you're not, um, it all falls apart very quickly, and it's hard to sustain your interest. Um, and it's easy to be distracted by how Robert De Niro does not look young. Not look young. So. <laughs> That's a big point for this movie outside of the vacuum of whether or not it's a good movie or a bad movie. They spent so much time talking about the de-aging process, the digital de-aging process that the miraculous industrial light and magic performed in making these characters look young. I don't think that they did a bad job for the de-aging. There were a couple shots that I felt were a little bit cartoony, but they had this filter of time over them where they might have been in the 50s or whenever it was when Joe he and Joe Pesci first met. But the problem is, as much as you can de-age all of these characters, we know exactly what Pacino and De Niro and Pesci looked like when they were younger. This is a different version of them when they're younger, where they still look old. It's like a little uncanny valley. Yeah, because we know how animated Joe Pesci can be. And he just, even though he looks younger, he still talks like old Joe Pesci. You know, it's just not, they're not the same vibrant actors that we know them to be. Right. Um, so it's, it's, it's strange. It, that's exactly the, the, the word. It's an uncanny valley. They spent so much time and effort de-aging them for the proper scenes that honestly, I lost it. I lost the content. Are they supposed to be young here? Are they supposed to be old? It just all blended together in a way that wasn't effective to me. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I thought, well, the aging I thought was fairly effective. Yeah, because they're old. Right. Al Pacino is like 77 years old. So let's talk about this movie and how effective it is in historical context with the other Al Pacino movie, which is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Right. Which I know people who went into this movie completely blind yep. as to what was going to happen in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And without that context, I can't imagine how ineffective that movie would be. That said, while we're going along in 60s era Hollywood, for us, moving toward this inevitable conclusion that we're just dreading on screen because we love Margot Robbie, Sharon Tate's character so much, to move through it without knowing what's coming, I, I imagine it would have been as random as a lot of the Irishmen felt for me. Yeah, and confusing. However, we're in Tarantino's world where there's humor and there, there are characters that we love, there's funny moments, there's a reverence. Um, he always plays with his history in a fun, playful, relatable, enjoyable way. Now that might not be the case for everyone, that might not be everyone's opinion. I have fun when I watch a Tarantino movie, even if this one, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, was the most, most dragging, one of the most dragging, I still had fun, and there are definitely scenes that I would want to watch again, and I liked the characters, regardless of what did or did not happen in the movie. I think it was a better movie than The Irishman, which was just straight across the board, serious, not funny, plodding, and, uh, and, and really difficult to enjoy. I mean, it was a slog for me, for sure, but there were charming moments. I mean, De Niro has a charming, kind of very subtle, dry wit and humor about him especially in this role where he's playing both sides kind of a thing. But I mean, I agree, I'm a, I'm a Tarantino fan, so I go with it. And I felt like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood really paid off. I definitely want to say that, that for De Niro's humor and his sort of dynamics as an actor, there are much better movies to see. Um, but this movie tackled themes that I cannot think who this movie was targeted at, except for old dudes, old dudes who love Pacino and De Niro and Scorsese and Pesci. But, I mean, 
he had a hard time uh, selling this movie. Netflix was the only only outfit that would put up the money for it. Sure. The only uh, outfit that could give him such a ridiculous uh, running runtime. Right. Without Netflix, this movie never would have been made, and probably with good reason. It's just so exceptionally long, or it would have been truncated in such a way that it wouldn't have been what it is. Maybe it would have been better. I don't know. It's not for me to say. But Netflix stepped in, and he got it made. But can you imagine the pitch? It's like, okay, I got the three stars, and they're all in their 70s, and it's about Jimmy Hoffa and the Bay of Pigs. And we have a whole world full of nurses who, who have no idea what's, what's happening. I mean, I'm pretty up on JFK, the assassination, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the 60s-era stuff, um, but they went to such pains to display how historically accurate it was um, by establishing points in history, recognizable right. points it. through the through right through the newscasts and things that just seemed like I was so disinterested by that point in the characters that it didn't matter how historically accurate it was to me. That being said, what do you give this movie? On my scale of nope, whatever, all right, or totally, I'm gonna have to say as much as I love Martin Scorsese and everyone involved, God, it's so good to see Joe Pesci back on screen. This movie just didn't clear the hurdle for me. The extraordinary runtime just made it not worth it. Uh, I'm glad I saw it and I'm glad I got it out of the way, but man, I, I just, I'm never gonna watch it again. This movie is just whatever. That's our discussion about The Irishman. Thank you for listening. If you have any uh, questions for us or just want to hit us up about whatever, email us at orwhatevermovies at gmail.com or give us a call. Leave us a voicemail at 818-835-0473. I'm Iris, and this is my bro, Wes, and thanks for listening. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, The Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interview. Electric Acid. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast Networks include Ruby for Female Empowerment, The Best Business Network, and GPN for Geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electrocast.